Hello and welcome to another fantabulous episode of the OST Party. This is a movie soundtrack podcast where movie fans and music fans get together, have a rocking good time, talking about all your favorite movie soundtracks. My name is Joseph Wade. I will be your host for this evening. Here with me tonight, as always, is my lovely and belligerent co-host, Libby Cutboard. Libby, what is shaking? I carried a watermelon. <laughs> good for you. <laughs> Thank you for your service. I did my best. <laughs> How are you tonight, Libby? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. It's Oscar night. We're here to do our OST party Oscar special tonight. And I would I I you know nothing would thrill me more than to record this podcast and specifically not watch the Oscars. So thank you for that tonight. I'm glad I could help. Uh I don't think I've watched an Oscar nominated movie. Unless, except for this one. This is probably the only Oscar nominated movie I've watched this year. But yeah, tonight on the show, we are discussing Dirty Dancing, a song that absolutely is an Academy Award winner, among many other things. And yeah, this is going to be a really fun time. This is, a, this is a movie that I feel like was inevitable. Like we were going to talk about this at some point. Mm-hmm. And I think tonight's a good night. I think we all need Dirty Dancing right now. It's a good, warm film that makes you feel good inside. Yeah, really. Who doesn't like Dirty Dancing? At least a little bit. Yeah, well, we've had the time of our lives. We certainly did. Well, let's clean up some old business from last week. We had uh, kind of a wild ride over on our music poll. Oh, heck yeah, we did. So when we after we talked about all three of the Austin Powers soundtracks, it only seemed right for us to do an entire like March Madness style bracket to determine the best song from all of those soundtracks. But for Austin Powers, we did uh, four sort of four brackets. One for each uh, of the three films in the Austin Powers series, plus a special Burt Bacharach uh, conference. And a Bacharach. A, <laughs> the BBC, as it were. Uh, <laughs> but uh, we're just going to go through the final four here. So uh, from, from Austin Powers' International Man of Mystery, Quincy Jones's Soul Bossa Nova went up against the Who's My Generation from The Spy Who Shagged Me, which I feel like was a misstep on our part. I think so, um, because it wasn't written for the film, which, to be fair, neither was Soul Bossa Nova, but uh, I think that one is a little a little less known and is really more associated with Austin Powers now than My Generation. I honestly forgot that My Generation was used in Austin Powers. Yeah, it was like the song they keep using for like the interstitial sequences, but yeah, um, yeah that was the one that won out the Spy Who Shagged Me uh, bracket. So between that and Sol Bossa Nova, Sol Bossa Nova easily won that poll. And mm-hmm. then moving on to the second, um, the second division we, where we had Goldmember going up against uh, the Burt Bacharach conference, it was Ming T as Daddy wasn't there versus Susanna Hoff's cover of The Look of Love. And The Look of Love, I think, won that one pretty easily as well. Yeah, I was honestly surprised that Daddy wasn't there made it as far as it did. It made it further than BBC, which I think we talked about. I prefer. Yeah, and if we had put those two head-to-head, of course, BBC probably would have won. Mm-hmm. But uh, then, of course, Soul Bossa Nova versus The Look of Love. Um, Soul Bossa Nova took that in an absolute cakewalk. <laughs> it was 80% to 20% of the vote. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's so, a big win for Soul Bossa Nova. Yes, but thank you all for participating and, and for sort of playing uh, 
our March Madness. It was it was a fun one to do. Yeah, thanks for playing along. That was definitely we've certainly abused Twitter's poll feature, but I think it was worth it because it was a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, stick around after this episode and uh, check out the poll on our Twitter feed for the best song from the Dirty Dancing soundtrack. I promise it'll only be four songs this time. (laughs) But how do we pick those four? There's a lot of really great ones on there. Oh, yeah. We're going to have to do a round robin style tournament for that one, too, aren't we? (laughs) Oh, no. Or at least a best uh, written for the film and a best uh, classic that's true because there, there really are like two major modes of the of, of like song that the soundtrack uses and we'll get into that here very shortly i mean we all know what it's gonna be oh yeah it's gonna be hungry eyes oh i don't know about that <laughs> so libby tell us a little bit about dirty dancing dirty dancing follows uh three weeks in august as baby played by jennifer gray uh goes with her family to Kellerman's Resort in the Catskills and falls in love with charismatic but somewhat cold dance instructor Johnny Castle, played by the late great Patrick Swayze. It's been a while since we had Swayze on here. I know. It's been so long since the the uh, Roadhouse episode, even. Yeah. But there's a but wh- lot in common with uh, with that one. Yeah. As, get into. As, as we'll find out, there's it's just, it's the the 60s by way of the 80s kind of thing that we keep running into what's your experience with dirty dancing well i think like a lot of millennial guys my mom absolutely loves this movie and so i saw it quite a lot as a child it was one of those movies that like when it came out i think i was maybe one or two years old and she got no i remember she told me she told me about this once she couldn't get it from the video store cuz it was constantly being checked out so what my dad wound up doing was he got her a subscription to hbo so that she could watch dirty dancing and what she did was she taped it off of hbo and then played that tape nonstop that's amazing your mom rules so my, my parents dis- decided that the real purpose of HBO and VCRs was to tape movies all the time. So that's, yeah. what we, that's, what, that's, the, that's the library of VHS tapes we had as a kid. Nice. But uh, yeah, mom loved it, loved, loved Dirty Dancing. And I don't know if my dad also liked it or if he just tolerated it. But uh, that movie got a lot of play in our household. Mm-hmm. So I think yeah. I just kind of grew up with it and just kind of took it for granted. Okay. Uh, Libby, what about you? I didn't see it till I was in my 20s. Really? I somehow missed all the sleepovers where they show Dirty Dancing. And watching it as an adult, I realized this is not a movie you show at sleepovers. This oh, is a no. very adult film. Um, and the fact that it's called Dirty Dancing. I don't know why I never saw it. I loved the music from it. I loved Hungry Eyes. I loved uh, I've Had the Time of My Life. I loved She's Like the Wind. Um, I listened to a lot of adult contemporary radio, as we've discussed before, so I was familiar with it. And I, I had seen Flashdance. I, I don't know why Dirty Dancing passed me by, but when Patrick Swayze died, um, we sort of had a mini like Swayze fest. And every Sunday we'd go to our friend Bridget's and we watched, um, we watched Roadhouse, obviously. Uh, and we watched Dirty Dancing because she couldn't believe I hadn't seen Dirty Dancing. And I know we watched uh, Tu Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmar. So uh, that I first saw it sort of in tribute to Patrick Swayze. And now I sort of watch it about once a year. 
uh, when I go to the Barrel House writer camp, it's a tradition at Barrel House that Saturday night we watch Dirty Dancing. And there's some some jokes with that that I'll get into uh, later. But it's a really nice feeling to watch that because of the summer camp feel and it's the last night of camp and we only see camp friends. That's the only time I really see them. And especially a lot of them were at AWP this week. And seeing them all together in photos just reminded me that like camp is around the corner. And so watching Dirty Dancing made me feel connected to them. Aww. Yeah. That's sweet. So I'm really, I'm really looking forward to, uh, to watching it again at camp. There's also really nothing like watching either Roadhouse or Dirty Dancing with a bunch of drunk writers. It's kind <laughs> oh, of amazing. I'll There's bet. a lot yeah, of hoot and like hollering. Yeah. <laughs> when we watched Roadhouse and Sam Elliott came on screen, the like wolf whistles should have set off air raid <laughs> sirens. They were amazing. They were just like it was like a Tex Avery cartoon. Oh wow. <laughs> yeah. And Patrick Swayze is always shirtless. He's shirtless in this too. Yeah, he for a good a- chunk of it. <laughs> As a joke that Mike Nelson has, I think I talked about it in the uh, Roadhouse one. He needs a shirt with a picture of him not wearing a shirt on it. <laughs> it's not my favorite Swayze movie, but it has a special place in my heart. Yeah, and I think it's one that, for better or worse, like people love it. People remember it because of the soundtrack, because the music yes. is so good, and because it's the iconic. way the because the way the film uses the music is so good. The story itself is kind of whatever, but like the music montages and the dance scenes are absolute aces. See, I think the story is incredible. Like when you really like dig into it and mine it. And this is the kind of shit that I should have been doing for my thesis in grad school. Like I should have really mined like a dirty dancing, but I didn't. I think I wrote a short story collection or some shit like that. <laughs> should have mined literary themes and dirty dancing. Mm. so i'm here for it <laughs> i'm trying to think of what the what the name of that thesis would be like johnny castle feminist hero there you go i was trying to think of a stupid chess pun and it would not come to me honestly i probably would have just called it nobody puts baby in a corner yeah that's fair it's the pain don't hurt of dirty dancing <laughs> i carried a watermelon the progressive feminism of dirty dancing yes exactly <laughs> there it is there it is. Yeah, you know, between between Dirty Dancing and uh, Roadhouse, like I was thinking about this today. The line "I carried a watermelon" from uh, Dirty Dancing, and then the line "A polar bear fell on me" kind of hold the same kind of weight to me. <laughs> they they do. And the they don't point... really mean anything, but they are very quotable for some reason. <laughs> well, before we even deign to touch the film itself, uh, guess what? There is about six chapters worth of billboarding school we have to get through tonight. <laughs> We're gonna go to commencement. Yeah, this is this is a master's thesis all on its own. Um, so first things first, the the way the movie came out was kind of odd because like the soundtrack came out a month before the movie did. So then by the time the movie came out in August of eighty seven, the soundtrack had been out and was kind of a non starter. Like nobody cared. By the time the film actually came out in August, it opened fourth at the box office behind Stakeout, Born in East L A, and Can't Buy Me Love. Huh. Okay. Not much of a hit at all, but then, like over time, partly because of the soundtrack, it be- it just sort of built steam and became this sort of juggernaut, and wound up making two hundred million dollars on a four million dollar budget, <laughs> like just absolutely huge. And then 
in September, the album finally like landed on the charts at number 77, September 19th. The number one album that week was the soundtrack to the film La Bamba. Okay. More dancing. More dancing and uh, m- more like sort of 60s nostalgia, 50s and 60s nostalgia. Yes. Which we'll definitely be getting into. But then Dirty Dancing itself hit number one in November and spent nine weeks there at number one. And it only got bumped off the top spot by George Michael's Faith in January of 1988. Okay. And then it spent about eight or nine weeks hanging around the top three while Faith was doing its thing at the top. Dirty Dancing takes number one again in March. And then it was again supplanted by George Michael's Faith in May. So it's just like duking it out. This the first half of 88 was just like Dirty Dancing and George Michael going head to head. And then, like, they were both just destroyed when, like, the combination of Def Leppard and Van Halen and Guns N' Roses and Poison all, like, broke big on the top of the charts at the same time. Oh! Just ruined it for everybody. (laughs) (laughs) But Dirty Dancing, like, hung out in the top ten for, like, the better part of a year. Like, the better part of 88 was, like, all Dirty Dancing all the time. And it finally dropped off the charts in July of 1989 after 96 weeks on the charts. Which And the number one album that week was, of course, Princess Batman soundtrack. Of course. Of course it was. <laughs> the breakout hit of the soundtrack was I've Had the Time of My Life by Bill Medley and Jennifer Warrens. It won the Academy Award for Best Original Song, the Grammy Award for Best Pop Duo, and the Golden Globe for Best Original Song. The song itself was probably even more popular than the film. It's an amazing song. It, it actually it really, truly is. Like, I'm not even going to front. It really, truly yeah. is. It's one of the most amazing pop songs ever written. Of all time. Yeah. And it almost didn't even happen. <laughs> yeah. For a number of reasons. So many reasons. It's kind of a wild story. Stay tuned. It really is. So then, um, well, I guess there's nothing left for us to do but to just jump straight into the film. Actually, no, there's one more point that I want to bring up when we're talking about the album itself. Just a weird um, like factoid that I, th- I found interesting. So I've had the time of my life hit number one on the charts. Be My Baby by the Ronettes peaked at number two on the charts. She's Like the Wind by Patrick Swayze peaked at number three. And then Hungry Eyes peaked at number four. Those are all the numbers one, two, three, and four songs on the album. <laughs> Did they do that on purpose? They just knew a hit when they had it. I, we know this is a number four hit, so put it on number four on the soundtrack. <laughs> Why not? Yeah. Just a bizarre, like, as I'm doing these numbers, I'm like, wow, really? One, okay, two, wow, three? Come on, guys. Yeah. It's amazing. Uh, We're going to talk tonight about the original soundtrack, which is not in order of the film. We will talk about it in order of the film, but the soundtrack, as we said, opens with I've Had the Time of My Life. Now, there was a second soundtrack, uh, More Dirty Dancing, which includes some of the songs that were used in the film, but not on the first soundtrack and in 2003 they released ultimate dirty dancing which contains every song from the film in order okay so there's a couple different ways you can buy the soundtrack they also released for the film's 30th anniversary a uh, vinyl reissue and a blu-ray remaster with previously unreleased material i have to ask was the vinyl reissue in like a pink vinyl I haven't seen it. I would hope so. And I feel like this is one you should be able to find on vinyl anywhere. Yeah, it's it should be relevant. Because it was such a monster soundtrack. Yeah. 
Oh, oh yeah, the like Walmart exclusive. Like the Walmart is exclusive is a pink vinyl album. Beautiful. Because Baby of pink. course it is. Speaking of pink, like this is a very pink film. Like they knew how to like hit that those that red stage lighting to make everything look pink the entire yeah. film. It's soft and pink and lovely. Yeah. So. That's the color of nostalgia. Yes. Yes, indeed. 1963. So, the summer of 1963. Yes, which we start in voiceover. So she's looking back on this summer. Yeah. As Yeah, cuz like this is like this is the late 80s. This is the era of of boomers looking back wistfully on their own childhoods. Like it's like this and stand by me and The Big Chill. The Big Chill, absolutely. So, we are in full boomer swing. Yeah, we are. So the the film opens with the opening credits play out as the Ronettes' Be My Baby just storms onto the screen. I don't wow. even know how else to describe it. It's just like, boom. This is the yes. Ronettes, everybody. Let's go to a clip. P. Ronnie Spector. We lost her very, very recently. Yeah, yeah. We can't possibly cover how important this song is in just this podcast. We could do, honestly, a whole podcast episode just on Be My Baby. And I'm sure other people have. Um, her voice is so big and bold and also so little girlish and pleading. Once you hear this as the opening, like, how else could this film open? Exactly, yeah. When you really sit down with it, for starters, her name is Baby. And <laughs> she's going Why to... Why did I... Ne- how did I never make that connection? You'd never... Lord. Yeah, there's a couple... There's several Baby songs on here. Oh my god, get with it. Um, but when you think about the song... She's going to be somebody's baby. She wants Johnny Castle to be her baby. Mm-hmm. She yeah. wants to be his baby. But there's also the father-daughter theme that we're going to see emerge later when she says, I'll make you so proud of me. That's a reoccurring theme with her and her father, played by the late, great Jerry Orbach. Absolutely, yeah. And so you could not find a more perfect needle drop to open your film with. If this had been written for the film, it wouldn't be this perfect. I want to go back now and do like an entire survey of like 80s movies that open with like 60s like girl group songs. Because mm-hmm. there's got to be a ton of them, you know? Yeah. Like off the top of my head, I can think of like this, Adventures in Babysitting, Gremlins did it. Uh, you know, like it's just a thing that they did in the 80s to make you instantly evoke like, oh, like th- the good old days of America, I guess. So, yeah. And also young women like on the cusp of adulthood yes yes because these voices were so not childlike but they had those last sort of touches like still still in the realm of like the innocent kind of you know yes but she's growing up a lot of these girls were teenagers when these bands started yeah and so I think that's why. And they work perfectly. Yeah, because Adventures in Babysitting opens with uh, And Then He Kissed Me. Yeah. And it's a 
per- that's a perfect needle drop. And it just there's an innocence about love that is in those songs when the innocence of love is about to fall away for mm. good and for bad. And, and I that's... think that's that's why 60s Motown girl groups are such a great start for these films about young women growing up. Yeah, and that's a, that's a perfect like segue into the rest of the film because like it's it really is kind of baby's journey into like kind of becoming an adult at the end yeah. of this film. In so many ways, she's a woman now. But yeah, so like the the thing with baby in this film is that she you know, she's heading off to college soon and she wants to be, join the Peace Corps. And yeah. like, a big thing about her character is that she wants to, you know, to help people and change the world. You know, the consequences kind of be damned. And mm-hmm. that kind of ultimately is what gets her in trouble frequently in this film is that she just cannot fathom that there are consequences for standing up to her father or or hanging out with the the dance instructors at this sort of weird Catskills summer camp kind of place. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's she has to learn a lot of a lot of things very quickly. Yeah, she has to learn how the world works and that sometimes just being like a really nice white lady isn't enough. Right, yeah. We briefly hear, as they pull up, um, we've got Big Girls Don't Cry mm-hmm. uh, when they're in the car, which is on a later soundtrack. Mm-hmm. Um, this is her sister, Lisa, who is like the horniest girl in the film. The horniest and also just the most awkward human being on the planet i know and the more i watch it the more i want a whole film about lisa (laughs) she is a star she she's She's amazing all all by herself she really is i love her lisa's my favorite character this also like when we hear uh big girls don't cry we also get because they're driving to this resort kellerman's and they're listening to the radio and the dj on the radio is played by cousin brucey who is a real radio dj from I guess from the 60s, but he still to this day does like like nostalgia radio stuff on uh, Sirius XM. Oh, nice. And for and for the life of me, I swear I could never hear this man's voice and not think it's Pin Gillette playing some character because he That's sounds funny. just like Pin Gillette to me. He does sound just like Pin Gillette. And then, cu- you know, Cousin Brucey will appear in the film very briefly as a magician who cuts baby in half. <laughs> But for the longest well, time, I'm... I was like, that's, that's so weird. Like, why is Pinjolette doing this character? And it's not even Pinjolette. <laughs> yeah, that's really wild. So uh, she mentions briefly, just like, and I never thought I'd find a man as great as my dad. Like, you are 18. You should have had a date by now. Hold on. Just hold your horses. Yeah, because you get right in the saddle real fast. Have you held hands with another boy? I need to know. No, daddy says that's gross. I guess. And like, but then again, also, I feel that I was a real late bloomer. So I sort of, I feel baby. I understand her. Game recognized. But I didn't have like a weird daddy complex about it. I was just unpopular. (laughs) That's fair. But I also like early on in the film, uh, time of my life starts to kind of work its way into the score of the film. Yes. Did you hear it a little bit? Like while baby's walking around the resort, kind of looking or checking things out. Yeah. It's a little, uh, it's what they call foreshadowing. Yeah, or a little uh, leap motif. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Wayne Knight is the uh, camp director. Yeah, what up, Newman? Yeah, we see him. <laughs> this was like uh, one of his first roles, I think, too. Yeah, and he's, he's always he's never not been Newman. <laughs> yeah, or Dennis Nedry. 
Yeah. He'll always true. be Dennis Nedry to me. That's fair. And we get the first dance instruction led mm-hmm. by Penny. Once again, Cynthia Rhodes returning to the OST party. She was last seen as Tina Tech in Flashdance. And here she is leading a merengue class. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yes. Baby, not great at it. No. No. Too, n- hardly anybody is very good at this. No, except for Cynthia Rhodes, who is an absolutely amazing dancer. It's a, just a 100% knockout star. Yes, she is beautiful and just moves like satin. <laughs> uh, but we also meet Johnny Castle. And we get sort of the underpinnings of the film as Kellerman tells everyone that they need to show the goddamn god- daughters a good time. <laughs> this is literally the note that I wrote. And I'm sorry, dance with the daughters, but don't fuck them. Pretty much. Now, I think what he's trying to say is be nice. Until it's time not to be nice. Now, hang on a minute here. Are you telling me that this is kind of a uh, a prequel uh, to Roadhouse? This is where Dalton learns the metaphor, like the rule to be nice. It could be. This could be like one of Dalton's early jobs. Or we could see it as Roadhouse for girls. <laughs> I mean, that's also just Roadhouse. <laughs> but this is like super soft roadhouse this is the, so, the soft rock mo- soft rock roadhouse yeah super soft birthday party roadhouse oh but it kind of is there's a lot of themes that run through both because are you going to tell me that johnny castle is a real name that's a made-up name <laughs> it's a great Dal- name dalton is his real name <laughs> the name is johnny castle if you know what though, if a dude like Patrick Swayze looked at me and said, "My name is Johnny Castle," I would look at all—I don't know—five foot four of him and say, "Your name is absolutely Johnny Castle. You look like a Johnny Castle." He looks like he can have any stupid name he wants. He's a lovely man, and we miss him dearly. We absolutely do. And yeah, no, no, uh, no shade thrown at, at uh, Patrick Swayze. We do miss this man. He—he he was yes. amazing. It blew my mind this morning when I started to do the math on how old Patrick Swayze was, and I realized he was 35 in this film, and I'm 35 now. <laughs> and I'm looking at this band like, what happened to me? <laughs> oh. <laughs> but he tells uh, Robbie to just put a pickle on everyone's plate and leave the hard stuff to me. And Robbie intends fully on putting a pickle on every girl's plate. Ew. Sorry. Gross. <laughs> Sorry, someone had to say it. And boy, does he ever. Does he ever. He gets around. I mean, he puts a pickle on the wrong plate, if you're asking me, but that's. Yeah. That's the that's the plot of the movie right there. Part of it. Yeah. So we see baby's first day and it's not going great. She has to dance with Neil, who is Kellerman's. Is it his grandson? Is it his nephew? I think it's his grandson. It's like Kellerman the third, I guess. Yeah, and he sucks. He's the um, worst. Well, it's hard because like, who's worse, Robbie or Neil? I don't know. Robbie's a piece of shit, but Kellerman is just sleazeball about it. Yeah, but Robbie later gives her tries to give her a copy of the Fountainhead. Oh uh, yeah, point Robbie. That's true. Okay, <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> I want to talk briefly though about this little 
the magician show and and Wayne Knight right. uh, telling jokes because I just watched Mel Brooks live at the Geffen, mm-hmm. uh, which we talked about back in our Mel Brooks episode when we talked about uh, hope for the best, expect the worst, right? And he talks about being one of these Borscht Belt comedians. Yeah, that's where he got his start. Yeah, doing these routines in the Catskills and where he would, you know, be a comedian, but also a busboy, but also, you know, entertain guests around the pool and wrangle the rowboats. And I love the, the really, really super niche Jewishness of this film because these resorts don't really exist anymore. Mm. And this captures them in a really lovely way. And it tells that story. And I love that. And it kind of, it kind of captures them at the moment when they started to fade away too. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're about to head into the summer of love and things are really going to change. So this, like these last moments of innocence for a lot of things. Just again, trying to tie that back to a, a previous episode. We actually yeah. get to see that in this film with uh with Wayne Knight. Um and So you're saying maybe, so you're saying oh. Wayne Knight's character absolutely could have like gotten a job, you know, working for Sid Caesar on TV and then he making making uh, the producers. I get that. Yeah, I can yeah. see that. It tracks. <laughs> absolutely. If if not for having, you know, gotten eaten by a bunch of Dilophosaurus. Listen, yeah, we can't all work with Michael Jordan, okay? <laughs> but uh, Baby is just not having any of this because it's boring. So she sneaks away. And we get our next song, which is uh, Tom Johnson singing Where Are You Tonight? Yeah, let's go to a clip. Now, my first question is, d- does this fit at all? That's a really good question. Because half of the soundtrack really doesn't. And that's something we're going to have to keep coming back to. I don't think this really fits anywhere on this. Because it's it's sort of, it's that country-twinged adult contemporary that we heard a lot of in the late 80s. Mm-hmm. And I cannot believe this guy found it, the Doobie Brothers. Yeah. Because this is just flat filler soft rock. It's like a, a Doobie Brother and some drum machines. And like, you could not have made this sound more early 80s if you tried. Yeah, it's so dull. And I guess, I guess like, I'm, I'm glad that we get what we get of this song in the film is just like you hear it playing kind of, you know, through a radio, you know, off in the distance. Yeah, but who there is listening to this? Yuck. <laughs> but even then it's like uh, you're trying to maintain the solution that you're in the 60s and all of a sudden i hear a doobie brother with drum machines and i'm like it just takes me right out of it yeah it really does um it and that's one of the big questions this soundtrack poses is the songs that were written for the film do not fit no with the era so what <sighs> Does a soundtrack that's a period piece like this, does it owe you to have its soundtrack sound like 
the period it takes place in. You think about something like that thing you do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Adam Schlesinger was a master of making songs sound like where they belonged. Absolutely, yeah. Or even uh, going to the Righteous Gemstones with Miss Behaven. That song sounded so like a 1960s country Christian hit that the crew members were like, I'm pretty sure my grandma used to play this song for me. Yeah, this song is like pure like 80s Grand Ole Opry kind of country music. Yes. And so I don't know if it's a product of the 80s that was just like, "Eh, we're just going to put this song in there. It doesn't matter if it matches because we've got, you know, the Ronettes. It's like we've got our hit already. We don't have to. We have to. We can just phone in the rest of these songs. Yeah. Which is is kind of what kind of what part of this album feels like is like they just phoned in the back half of this album. Yeah. It's it's a very, very strange album when you look at at it as a whole, because it really is divided between the 60s and the 80s. Right. And no in between. And I I wonder if part of like the popularity of of the sixty songs is that like at that point in the eighties even in, into today like those sixty songs that fifties and sixty songs that survived those are the good ones so of course we love them mm-hmm. but then in the eighties well well who do we get well we're gonna get a Doobie Brother we're gonna get um, the Blow Monkeys we're gonna get um, one of the right you know we're gonna get Bill Medley I guess like does that are, are they going to produce great hits? One or two of them might, but for the most part, yeah, it's just we need we need songs for our soundtrack, and we don't have a lot of time. It, yeah, it's they they reach back to the '60s. Obviously, Eric Carmen was at the Raspberries. Yep, but that's true. They don't sound like the '60s. No. So are these playing? You know, as we say, live. You like you said, this is coming from a radio, but it's not. It'd be like seeing her show up in a pair of Air Jordans. Yeah. Like, yes, they wore sneakers in the 60s, but not those. But, again, this is something we're going to keep coming back to. And, two, I guess it also just becomes a factor of, like, this is the 80s looking back on the 60s, so we're going to give them a little bit of leeway there. Yeah. And so, but then it's like, is baby applying, is 80s baby applying her 80s knowledge to her memories of the 60s. Right. I think that's a, that's a level of like meta text that's a little too advanced for Dirty Dancing, <laughs> I think. I'll put it in my thesis. <laughs> All right. That's fair. So. What we're saying she, is this song is fine. No, what I'm saying is this song is garbage. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. So let's move on. Yeah. Um, it also is, is at the very tail end of the soundtrack they knew they didn't have anything good here yeah and we're spending way too much time on this because the bet the, the better and more important song is coming right after this oh god which is not on the soundtrack but is absolutely worth talking about it's the contours uh, do you love me and live oh. and libby we got to talk about this one we do uh let's go to a clip do you love me This is playing as everyone, all the dance instructors are having like a raucous party. They're playing the contours. Do you love me? Now, 
some of you may remember this song because we previously talked about it on Teen Wolf 2. A fact that I had completely forgotten about. Yes, it awoke something in me when I was watching this. Like something that I had buried really deep down and I guess now I have to go kill the Prime Minister of Malaysia. <laughs> like it was deep down in there. Just suddenly had visions of Jason Bateman dressed like the Joker singing Do You Love Me? Yes! <laughs> and it, it ruined my day. It ruined your day to the honest, point where I you just started heard. angrily texting me about it and I had no <laughs> idea what you were talking about. Yeah, and then you're like, oh shit, yeah, it was in Teen Wolf too. Um... And they came out the same year, didn't they? They did, yeah. I think Dirty Dancing came out like a month before Teen Wolf 2 did. It came out, um, but it came out in August? Yeah. Teen Wolf 2 came out in November. Oof. So, and we talk about that if you go back and listen to our Teen Wolf episode, which I recommend you do. We're quite tortured by the whole thing. Um, they, they beat them to it. They really did. And they- their scene is it's for starters it's a cover by a band called ragtime which we think is just jason bateman um their scene is a little more of a set piece here it could have been any song i mean it's sexy and it really works but they built a whole set piece around do you love me right so (sighs) (laughs) but yeah here this is like one of one of the more iconic scenes in the film and we're gonna find out that like all of the iconic scenes are all of the dancing scenes well yeah it's called dirty dancing dirty dancing for a reason but like i don't even know what to say about this because it's just this is the 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 dance instructors just like grinding up on each other like there's no tomorrow yeah they're having more fun than i've ever had in my whole life and they're they're going crazy and they're at work i know (laughs) Like they're having uh, more fun than the people that the actual vacationers are having at their own resort. Because they're like they're wild and free and young. They're not buttoned up doctors like playing croquet. Yeah, they're not. They're not downstairs doing the mambo or the waltz with you know an eighty yeah. year old woman. And this shows a generational divide. Yeah, you know, we're we're seeing we're going to start seeing youth movements through the sixties. And they're stepping away from their parents. They're really having their own movement. They're free. They're sexually liberated. Summer of Love is coming up. And they're not they're not tied down by the man. Yeah, like the, the, the way so- the social mores of dancing are, are do not apply to them. Yes. They are just there to like drink beer and have fun and do sexually charged dances. Wow. Honestly, with the. Yeah. And I love that. As I said, they're having so much fun. And uh, obviously, Johnny and Penny show up and Mm -hmm. they just smoke the whole dance floor. Oh, yeah. And we find out that they're not dating from Bobby, Johnny's cousin, who informs Baby, like, no, they're just buddies. Like, they're friends. It's like, oh, you can just you can just dance with a person and not want to date them. Like, yeah. Yeah, dancing is for everybody, and I love that because mm. I love dancing. Wow, um, and I don't get to do it. Obviously, you know, COVID shut down a lot of my dancing, but I used to love going out dancing. It's so fun. <laughs> wow, I miss it a lot. But oh, that's, a I'm... that's a shame. Yeah. Yeah. 
we also get uh, Otis Redding's Love Man, mm-hmm. and Johnny like seductively uh, gives her a come hither and sort of shows her some sexy dancing. Kind of basically just starts air humping. Pretty much, yeah. And he just grabs her and just starts going to town. And she's not entirely sure what to do. Yeah, men, don't do this. You're not Patrick Swayze. No. Do not do this. I had a, I knew a guy back in college. Have I talked about Naked Dave on this podcast before? I don't think so, no. I feel like you would have remembered Naked Dave. Yeah. Naked Dave was a guy I went to college with. I do not remember his last name. And he moved like Patrick Swayze, but all the time. Like, he would just be talking to you, and he would be, like, undulating his hips. Oh, God. Saying nothing. Just say, hey. Hey, what's up? You okay on that history test? Yeah, I think I got an A. It was pretty good. Do you want to go streaking? No. Yikes. Leave me alone. Stop humping the air. You're going to get, like, the air pregnant. (laughs) That's really... I have a lot of Naked Dave stories, but they're best told in person, because you really have to see the undulating, but... No, I think I'm okay. Oh, no, you're going to hear them one day. Okay. Um, and I love how, like, Elaine Bennis awkward baby is. I'm not the world's greatest dancer, but I'm better than, than her. <laughs> She's so awkward. She is. She is very, like, very stiff and very, like, she, uh, it's. Which kind of surprises me, to be honest, because they would have thought that a woman of her stature like a social standing would have at least had a cotillion or been a debutante. Like, I would think she would know a few steps or taken ballet. Her dad's a doctor. Well, I mean, I mean, like doing a basic waltz, I guess, is a lot different than like air humping a random person. But she doesn't even have the basic waltz. I mean, when we see her in the merengue class, she has no, she's two left feet. Right. That's fair. So I'm just, I'm kind of surprised that, you know, a a well-off woman such as herself. And I think she's probably upper middle class. Oh, easily. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think, you know, there, she's not a Rockefeller. Um, But I would have thought she looks like someone who would be presented in society. Now, I don't know if, because she's Jewish, like, I don't know if they did debutantes in the 60s, but I feel like there probably should have been some basic ballet classes or a waltz lesson somewhere in her training, a cotillion. Yeah, something like that for sure. Mm-hmm. The next day, you know, she sees Penny, Robbie's being a creep. Penny is very cold to her. She's mm-hmm. like, you don't know shit about me. I'm... And she said, you know, my mom kicked me out and I had to support myself. And you start seeing again those class divides, which are crucial to this film. They do not brush them over, which I like. And um, we get to see Neil again. And he is super aggressive. Like, where's Penny? And he says, as we see Robbie just being a jerk, he says, sometimes in this world, you see things you don't want to see. You know, like Teen Wolf (laughs) 2. He takes Baby into the kitchen and offers her whatever she wants. Milk, a brownie, pudding. Boy, the world is her oyster. I know. It's like, God, do you treat all your dates this well? Jesus. He really is the catch of the county. (laughs) Neil Kellerman. But we find out. 
Penny's crying in the kitchen because she's pregnant and Robbie's the dad. And it's Robbie's. And she needs money for an abortion. It's $250. Yep, that there's a doctor who will come through. And it, abortion wasn't legalized in New York until 1970. So when her when baby baby asks her father for the money, mm-hmm. and then his 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 first reaction is to ask her if it's if it's for something illegal. It was, and it was, mm-hmm. and then he immediately like takes that back because he thinks better of her. Yeah, but yeah, and yeah. I feel yeah. and and this is really important, and I think especially now as Roe v. Wade is under such threat because one of the things that Penny says is she can't get the abortion because she can't take the time off work. Mm -hmm. They can only get an appointment Thursday. And with all of these really restrictive uh, anti-choice laws going up, that's a huge problem is, yeah, abortion is still legal in New York, but if you live in Texas, how the fuck are you supposed to get to New York? Mm -hmm. Especially if you're a low-income woman. Because, you know, Greg Abbott's mistress is always going to be able to get an abortion. But the woman working at the gas station isn't. And that's on full display here. And when we talk about the class struggles of dirty dancing, I think that's a really important point of it is that abortion isn't accessible if you can't get the time off work. Right. And it's 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 it's. Tokenized as being, or let me, that's not the right word, but it's it's turned into like this weird privilege. Like if you can pay for it, if you can afford it, like sure, let's go for it. But uh, you know, it's it's not available to everybody the way it should be. Yeah, and she's gonna lose her job if she goes through with it. And I like that it's never like, oh, should I keep the baby? Like, nope. And everyone supports her. Yep, like everyone gets it like right away. Like, okay, this is what has to be done. Yeah, you have you are making this choice. Because you are not ready to raise a child. And that's that's what you were going to do. And we love you. And we're going to support you. And everyone really rallies around Penny. Including Baby. Who she has just met this woman. And this woman like, does not I will like help her. You. Yeah. I will help you. Because this is what you need. And that's a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. And that's and it's, it's perfectly in keeping with like what we know about Baby. And who she is. The kind of person she is. Yeah, but it's also, as we're going to later find out, you know, she blindly thinks like, yeah, this, she'll go to a good doctor. Right. If he's a Uh, doctor, he must be, you know, good at his job. Like her dad. Exactly. So, but we'll, we'll get into that. She agrees, though, that she is going to learn all of Penny's steps and do the show so that Penny can have this abortion. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Baby is so good. As yeah. Baby and, and Penny are, are talking about this, we've got um, Stay by Maurice Williams and the Zodiacs. Let's go to a clip. So this is the original. This one is often covered, but they went with the original. I appreciate that. I do. It's got this sort of reggae 
tinge to it. Just a little bit, yeah. Which I really like. Um, I like this one a lot better than the thousand other covers. Um, mm. And I think in part, because there's a little bit of a garage feel to it. Like, it's very rough. And I like that. Especially because, you know, doo-wop seems very, like, sharp and very polished. Mm-hmm. And this is a little grungy. And the the way it's produced gives it a very well-worn feel. Sort of like a much-loved record. And it very much is a much-loved record. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I always kind of liken to this one to be, like, like Maurice Williams and the Zodiacs are, like, the precursor to, like, the Four Seasons and Frankie Valli. Because, like, when he hits that high note in the middle of a song, like, that's... Oh my god, it's so good. Yeah. <laughs> and it's it's like the it's the start of every like like doo-wop group trying to have like a, a singer with a unique voice, mm-hmm. you know, as the as the linchpin. <laughs> but also like this is apparently the shortest song ever to hit number one on the charts. Really? 98 seconds. Amazing. You, you get in and you get out. <laughs> Ain't nothing wrong with that. Not at all. <laughs> you can listen to this th- four or five times before you can listen to it. At the time it takes to listen to like Stairway to Heaven. Much better use of your time. I agree. But yeah, not not a lot uh to, to say about this one except that like this it's a it's very much a classic and I appreciate that they use the original on the soundtrack. Yes, and it it roots it in that that moment. Right. Like the early sixties. So. Yes. Um so there is several extended dance montages. They don't go great. Um, baby is not a good dancer, but she learns. Um, she's she works really hard. She gets really sweaty. Uh, Patrick Swayze tickles her. Apparently, that when he's like running his hands down her side, and she laughs. Um, apparently oh, that that that, uh, that annoyed look that he has on his face as it as yeah. that happens. Yeah, <laughs> that's real. Because he actually, he didn't mean to tickle Jennifer Grey, but she kept laughing and blowing these takes. He was so pissed. They did not get along on this. They were not friends. And because he was a professionally trained dancer and she wasn't. Right. So. But, uh, but apparently they had got had gotten along on, I think it was Red Dawn they were in together. And that's kind of what got them both the gig on this one is that they had chemistry at some point. They and had great chemistry. They just hated each other. They just hate each other. <laughs> yeah. So um, they did, I guess, make up later in life, which is good to hear. Right. Um, I believe she attended his funeral. Um, but we get um, uh, another sort of, it, it's a castleism, but it's very similar to like a Daltonism that we'll see in uh, in Roadhouse, where he tells her that the steps aren't enough, that she has to feel the music. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think is something we apply to everything we do. It's not enough to know a technique. You have to feel it. Right. You must, like, it's not enough to know how to podcast. You have to feel the podcast. Yeah. You have to feel the music. You have, you have to learn your, You have to learn these things the hard way sometimes. Yeah. Uh, but we also get uh, our next song, which is Eric Carmen's Hungry Eyes. Let's go to flip. So the first thing I want to say about Hungry Eyes is like, 
I love the music video for this because it's just so like perfect 1980s cheese. <laughs> <laughs> like you get the big sax solo in the middle of this. Oh song, god, that sax solo! And you you think you're gonna get like a Clarence Clemens or somebody to come in and do this? No, it's like the sexy lady that they've done up to to star in this video. She does the sax solo. <laughs> it's amazing. Beautiful. So, tell me the story behind this song. This is one, and we're gonna see this a couple more times on the the album. But when producer uh, Jimmy Einer approached Eric Carmen about this, he said, "No." <laughs> he thought that soundtrack music had horrible deaths. That is a direct quote. Um. And he wanted to wreck his career the old-fashioned way, namely being a lunatic and a Trump supporter. Of course, uh, naturally. <laughs> but he just kept on him, and eventually we got um, Hungry Eyes. This one was written by Frankie Prevetta with John DiNicola. And I've got stories about John DiNicola later, but this was one of the songs that they wrote. And it was, again, a monster hit. I don't know how I feel about this song. <laughs> I think the verses are really sexy. I think the chorus is a little cheesy. It's a lot cheesy. What are you? It's talking so about? cheesy, and like I kind of love it, but I also cringe just like a little bit because I used to like I used to really love this song, and I think this was one of those songs, as we talked about with "Crazy for You" back on Vision Quest, that I had probably heard a scrap of somewhere, and always wanted to hear the rest, and then I. Th- distinctly remember i heard it on the bus like playing on the radio on the bus i was like there it is there's that song so it was hungry (laughs) eyes from the dirty dancing soundtrack yep yep it's the the sax really dates it though it gets extremely 80s it it really does and like and again like that it takes you right out of the like the the 60s vibe of the whole movie Mm -hmm. It's like, yep. oh right, this is a this is an '80s pop you know song that I can hear on the radio right now. Not you know, this is not Maurice Williams and the Zodiacs by far. No, no, it is 100 percent 1987 coming at you. But like Not you compare much. this to like uh, a time of my life, like this song has such a huge like sweaty boomer dad kind of energy to it. <laughs> yes, there it is. <laughs> there it is. This is the song a divorced dad sings in a karaoke night. Oh God. You're making it worse. I love it. Never stop. <laughs> I I don't dislike the song, but like that is very much the vibe that I get off of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love this song a lot more when I was a kid. This one hasn't aged well with me. But um, we also get, we've got a couple songs coming right in a row here in these, like getting ready for the dance montage because we also get uh overload by zapacosta which plays when johnny castle breaks into his own car let's go to a clip I feel like Peter Gabriel lifted a lot of this for his song Steam in 1992. If you play those two side by side, they sound very similar. My feeling is that Robert Palmer called and he wants his backup dancers back. <laughs> this is very much a Robert Palmer song to me. I love it. I would, you know, I would say Dan Hartman. 
There it is. Yeah. Right yeah. there. <laughs> um, this is it's really overproduced. It's like extremely like eighties stuffed crust. Yes, absolutely. But I really like it. I really like this song. This was like the biggest surprise on the soundtrack because this was the one I didn't have this soundtrack. Of course, I knew all the hits, but this one really surprised me. I don't know. I I think it. I think it was just at this point in the film, I was really starting to get annoyed at how much the '80s songs took me out of it, and then it just yeah. here comes another one, and it's even worse than the others. In the film, I agree. They take you right out, but. Outside of the film, like I really like this. I think it would have fit better on something like Pretty Woman because you know, it has that go west feel to it. You're kind of right because there's a little bit of a western kick to it, and yeah, like this, this honestly would have fit way better in Roadhouse. <laughs> it's a little too fancy for Roadhouse, I guess. Yeah, it's pretty fancy, it's a little too city boy. Well, then have Jeff the Jeff Healy band play it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, it's fine. I don't I don't dislike it, but it is extremely 80s. I really I like it. It doesn't fit in the film at all. <laughs> but I like it on its own. But I, I do love the scene where like Johnny decides that he's gonna take baby out to the middle of nowhere to, to practice some dancing. And it's raining and he can't get into his car because oh the keys are locked in the car, so he just smashes the window. It's like, yeah. you know what? Fuck it. <laughs> Who cares? Yeah. It's 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 played in such a way where it feels like they didn't mean to. And Patrick Swayze was just like, fuck it. I've been standing in the rain. I don't like my co-star. I'm going to break this car window and let's just get this scene. <laughs> they didn't want to wait for a locksmith. It feels very authentic. <laughs> Who locked the keys to the prop car in the car? What yeah. the hell are you doing? <laughs> it feels like a very Swayze scene. A little bit. <laughs> but we also got uh, our second, we got another song in here. This one is from uh from the 60s it's uh hey baby by bruce channel yeah let's go to it when i saw you walking down the street i said that's the kind of gal i like to meet she's so pretty lord she's fine i'm gonna make her mine all such a warm and and lovely song it's like a summer breeze and like be my baby it's another sort of cheeky needle drop hey baby yeah (laughs) it's that harmonica i love the harmonica sound in this oh yeah and he taught john lennon how to play harmonica well that's interesting i never knew that yep that makes uh... that makes a lot of like the early beatles stuff make a lot more sense yeah, he put it wow. uh, right to use on uh, Love Me Do and then Please Please Me. Yeah, he did. Wow, that's amazing. Because yep. he had this album on his jukebox. He was a huge fan of this song. So this song really was instrumental in like the Beatles as we know them. Yeah, so that, that you, you forget that like, you know, the Beatles are people just like everybody else and like their music came from somewhere, you yeah. know? He learned from from this. Bruce Channel, and, yeah. Yeah. So, and, uh, and in the scene, you know, Johnny is teaching Baby how to uh, balance on a log. Like they're doing, uh, trying to do dance steps on a log out mm-hmm. in the middle of nowhere. He, they try to do lifts, like the, the lift move in a field. And then they do the, the iconic lift scene in the lake. Yes. And what he says about the lift is, you will hurt me, 
if you don't trust me. Every life, every line in this film has such a great philosophical feel to it. There's a there's a whole philosophy book around <laughs> dirty dancing. Because the- you can really hurt someone if you don't just trust them, if you're not vulnerable and you're not open to them. Right. Yeah. You don't trust that they will carry you. Honestly, like that when you get married, I'm gonna give that I'm gonna use that in a speech at your wedding. That's great life advice. Great love advice. That's fair. Yeah. Yeah. It's quite beautiful. Life, um, life according to Patrick Swayze. Yes. A, and we again hear um the time of my life. Mm-hmm. Uh a little bit. Now, now it's here that I have to pause and I have to go back to one of my constant refrains on this podcast. They filmed this near where I lived. Really? <laughs> yeah. So the lake that they're in is Lake Lure in North Carolina up in the mountains. And at the time they filmed this, I was living about an hour away. I was one year <gasps> old. Oh. <laughs> and we'll I, I think this is, I think that, that makes this, a, this really fascinating that this is a movie about where Libby lives that was filmed where I live. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Amazing. That is great. This movie binds and connects us. And now, um, so having practiced all their moves in the, in the lake, they do the dance that they were that that, that Penny was supposed to do at was it's the other uh, resort down the road. I forget the name of the resort, mm-hmm. but it's Johnny, Johnny Castle and partner in Magic Mambo. Yes. And Johnny um, and Baby do do their routine. She does pretty good. She, she doesn't do the lift, though. She doesn't do the lift. She gets a little nervous. So, but he covers for her. And none of these idiots know the difference. No. But uh, it should be noted that she sees uh, the Schumachers. Mm-hmm. And she notices that they're there. And they are staying at Kellerman's. And she's very worried that they're going to see her. But we're going to come back to the Schumachers later. They're a vital piece of this film. Right. And I, having not seen this in like 10 years, I forgot. I immediately clocked what was going on. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, oh, yeah, I bet that's a a, a klepto granny. And boy, I was right. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Um, And... But then we come back. But, to, we come back to Kellerman's to discover that uh, Penny's abortion pro- procedure uh, was botched. Yes, uh, no surprise. Her back alley abortion uh, didn't go great, and it was a guy with a folding table and a dirty knife. And yeah. she is, uh, she's got an infection, and she's bleeding everywhere. It's really bad. So baby goes to get her dad, and he's kind of an asshole about it. He's very good to Penny. Oh yeah, he does. He's a good doctor. But, he does his job. Yeah, he takes care of Penny. He doesn't blame her, but he's, you know, kind of a jerk to Johnny because as he sees it, and as he'll say later, he thinks that, um, you know, Johnny is the father and sent her to a butcher. Well, Johnny claims responsibility for her. Yes, yes. But he doesn't know that he meant that in a, like, caretaking way, not in a, I knocked this girl up and, you know, let her get her uterus scraped out. Exactly. Um, but he's disappointed in baby, and he doesn't. Yeah, he, he wants her to stay away from Johnny, and that's boy, that's just not going to happen. That just yeah. is not going to happen. And they, they connect. They, you know, pour their hearts out. They have sex. They dance. I I, lo- I love the scene. Where the baby's family is hanging out in the hotel room. Her dad is doing a jigsaw puzzle, and baby just decides this is boring. I'm going to go sleep with Johnny. Yes, and that's later, um, because oh, sorry, dad, 
Yeah, dad threatens to leave the next morning, but there's a big show and they can't leave. And this is Lisa gets one of her great moments and why she's really the true star of my heart because she's complaining. So Lisa, what were you planning to sing? I feel pretty. Or what do the simple folk do? Or I feel pretty. What do you think, daddy? <laughs> and she says that as she's leaving. Like, I love that she is underrated comic genius. And But when they go to check up on Penny, everyone exchanges forlorn glances. And she, you know, Penny is like, don't get mixed up with the guests. Mm-hmm, Do it. Mm-hmm. It's good advice, but, you know, Johnny can't listen to that. And that's where she gets up and, like, leaves and goes and sleeps with him. Right. And we find out that he has slept with a lot of the women there. He is Johnny Castle, male gigolo. Absolutely. Which is another really dark part of this film. And like he admits to her, like, no, like you don't understand. Like, I didn't use them. They used me. Yeah, that's dark. Just thinking of, like, these rich women whose husbands are away all week. And the staff is just told, like, sleep with these women. Because it's like, it, dark. Uh, and because apparently, it, apparently it's fine when, it, when it's a man that you're... you're, you're uh whoring out all over the resort you know like yeah. it's okay because they're just guys right well i assume he's doing it to the girls too well y- you have to kind of yeah ah man but Keller- there's a Ke- lot of kellerman yeah. is a secret villain here isn't he kellerman is absolutely the villain and it's like the you know a lot of because we are millennial children we grew up watching dirty dancing but every year we watch dirty dancing you learn something darker and meaner about it <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It, because, it started out like this cute film about like love and dancing. And by the end, it's just like there's botched abortions and brothels. And it's really a very upsetting <laughs> film. I love it. I love this film. <laughs> and and mom, if you're listening, why did you like this movie? <laughs> I know. It's pretty dramatic. But like moms also love Special Victims Unit. That's, well, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, Yeesh. But <laughs> Mom, moms love two two Jerry Orbach things: Dirty Dancing and Law and Order. Yeah. Whereas millennials love two Jerry Orbach things: the Dirty Dancing and Beauty and the Beast. Of course. Those are our two favorite things. Absolutely. Um. So her sister announces she's going to go all the way with Robbie and gets in a really solid burn. I've decided to go all the way with Robbie. It's it's just wrong this way. It should be with someone. Someone that that you sort of love. Oh, come on. You wouldn't care if I humped the entire army, as long as they're on the right side of the Ho Chi Minh Trail. What you care about is that you're not daddy's girl anymore. Which oh, is a yeah. solid burn from Lisa. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Lisa, it did not come to play. <laughs> I love her. Lisa has words for baby and her her stupid humanitarianism. <laughs> well, because it, it's also, it's a very, like, self-serving humanitarianism. I yeah, think in a real. lot of ways yeah. it's, you know. She would definitely, baby would go to New Orleans and stand around, like, posing for pictures, building Katrina houses. Not actually oh, building. Oh, God, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. I want to love baby. I want to feel best for her. But I also know that she probably would, if, this was made right now she would have a very curated instagram 
Probably so. Of her with a lot of black children. She'd be like, I'm going to Africa. Like, where? Africa. (laughs) (laughs) She doesn't seem that bright. It's all the same, right? Yeah, exactly. It's not, actually. But uh, we we get to Love is Strange. Mm -hmm. Playing the men play volleyball, the women bunny hop, and uh, Patrick Swayze and Jennifer Grey dance. So here's um, Mickey and Sylvia, Love is Strange. Let's go to a clip. Check it out, Joe. We're in. <laughs> so you and I have a very, very different frame of reference. We really do. The Clerks cartoon is one of the things that Libby and I bonded over very quickly. Very early on. <laughs> Might be the first thing we bonded over. Maybe. Think about it. When one of us like made a reference to this weird TV show that only aired twice and the other was like, oh my God, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> this is my favorite thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And th- there's an episode where Patrick Swayze is one of the main characters and he's voiced by Gilbert Gottfried because of course he is. He named the horse Ghost like that movie he did. Yeah, exactly. And then later Roadhouse. But th- at a certain point in this episode, um the our characters just ra- randomly hear the opening strings of Love is Strange and then Jay and Silent Bob around the corner are dancing with a monkey. Yeah. Apparently they wanted to use, I think it was Hungry Eyes, and the producers of Dirty Dancing said no. And so they just, <laughs> they just defaulted to Love is Strange. Which works better because it's a monkey. Yeah. <laughs> and I didn't make the connection in my head that that's from Dirty Dancing. And yeah, that's the Patrick Swayze episode. Like, that didn't occur to me until today. <laughs> yeah, because it's not, like, immediately apparent. It's not It's not Hungry Eyes. Yeah, and I think because, like, love is strange and it's a monkey, it's like, oh, they're, you know, attracted to this monkey. I didn't even think about the song. It was like, oh, it's just some weird song, whatever. Yeah. No, it is, it is a Patrick Swayze movie song reference. <laughs> Which it's is deep, and I love that. A wonderful deep cut. Yes. That said, I don't like this song and it makes me uncomfortable. Eh, it's not my favorite. Like they, it, they play act the song in the movie and I always hate that when they do that in movies. I do. It's like, don't play air guitar, Patrick. Don't. No one don't who's ever that. played air guitar has ever done it well. No, you look like an idiot. Yeah. No. Um, but Neil comes in. Neil. And I'm Neil. I thought you always do the mambo. And why not dance this year's final dance to the Pachanga? Right. Johnny Castle has to say yes. He needs this job. Yeah. And later, um, well, we get in sort of these uh, interim scenes, uh, we get the Blow Monkeys covering Leslie Gore's You Don't Own Me. Let's go to a clip. Yeah. Don't say I can't go with other boys Don't tell me what to do And don't tell me what to say Please, when I go out with you Don't I have a lot of questions about this song. Yeah. 
I have a lot of questions about this song and its inclusion in the film. Like, okay, so um, obviously Leslie Gore, right? Again, yeah, nineteen sixties music. Um, I don't know if a very camp gay version fits the tone of this film. It certainly hits much differently than the Leslie Gore version would have. Yes, and I love Dr. Robert's voice, and I'm normally all about this sound. Don't call it Sophistapop. He hates that. Okay. It's silky and spooky and camp as hell. Right. It does not fit here. It does not fit here at all. It, this, is, this is probably the soundtrack's biggest misstep. Especially when, like, this is the only instance on here where they just had a modern artist cover a 60s song instead of just using the 60s song. Yeah. And like and... you could have you could have done the whole album like that or you could have done it all with 60 songs but then they just randomly said, "You know what? Let's just shake things up for this one." Yeah, let's get the the Blow Monkeys who are a British pop band. Right. Um and this plays right before uh he sorry, Johnny just kicks the absolute shit out of Robbie. Mm-hmm. And even like pulls back like he's going to rip his throat out. But he decides, no, he's not going to rip his throat out. He's better than that. That's right. Again, it's Roadhouse for Girls. Yeah. Um, we, we, we would have to wait until Roadhouse to get that payoff. To get the throat rip. No, this cover of You Don't Owe Me is bad. It's no, really, it's, it's, a, it's a big misstep here. Uh, it would have gone well into Wong Fu. Yeah, I could see that. I could see that working. But absolutely not here. Holy shit. A hundred percent no. No, thank you. Shit. Yikes. But Um, so then one of the like the final turns in in the movie happens here because at some point uh, Johnny is is basically propositioned by one of the guests at the hotel mm -hmm. because her husband is not going to be here till the weekend. She's here all week. So she tries to, uh, you know, get an extra dance lesson with him if you catch my drift dance lesson they mean sex yeah and then her husband her no, her husband is the one who actually like offers johnny the money and apparently yeah. he's in on this he, he he knows the score he knows or he's stuff. really dumb or maybe he's like into that either way you know i'm not gonna i'm not gonna kink shame anybody no but uh johnny has to refuse because like no i'm not gonna i'm not he's gonna in play love like with that. baby he's in love with baby at this point and so we we later discover, as Lisa is going to Robbie's cabin, uh, and the next song on our soundtrack plays, that Robbie is already has already been propositioned by this lady, and yes, they're ma- they're doing the thing in his cabin. Yes, and that song is yes. It's also called by, yes. Yes, by Mary Clayton. Let's go to a clip. song marries the slick 80s sound with the 60s girl group wall of sound feel on that side of the soundtrack probably as close as we're going to get yeah it works it works better than the other attempts at doing this Mm -hmm. and i think you could probably put some studio filtering on it and make it sound like a 60s recording Mm-hmm. And musically, I don't know if you'd be able to tell the difference. 
Probably not. So, for, um, for as long now, for as much as they play in the film, though, no, you wouldn't really notice. Yeah, you could you could pass this as a '60s song. Now, Mary Clayton uh, was a backing vocalist, most notably on "Gimme Shelter" by the yes. Rolling Stones. Yeah, but the, I found out a fun fact. In, in researching for this podcast. In 1989, she and Eric Carmen covered Almost Paradise from Footloose. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah, this is... Uh, Dirty Dancing is kind of Footloose for Jews. Okay. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll, I'll let you make that, make that distinction. I'll let you have that one. <laughs> I kid. But I, I get it. I, I see where yeah. you're going. They're really... You know, everyone there is like really buttoned up, but then they learn... How great dancing is. Yeah. So, um, but Mrs. Pressman is not taking this not sleeping with Johnny shit well. Lying. Because she... <laughs> She's not yeah. taking it lying down. Except, wait, no, no, she kind Sorry. of is. She, she absolutely is. Um, and she accuses Johnny of stealing Mr. Pressman's wallet. Mm-hmm. And Baby points out it's probably the Schumacher's. And Johnny gets fired anyway. Because, yeah, because Baby has to then give Johnny his alibi, which is that he couldn't have been Johnny because he was with her all night. Yeah, and her dad is disappointed in her, but she's disappointed in him, too, because as she puts it, you know, you say I should help people, but only people who look like me. Mm -hmm. And I think that that hits old uh, Daddy Orbach there. Yeah. Yeah, but um, it turns out the Schumachers did take the wallets. It, yeah, and are wanted in Arizona, and that makes Dirty Dancing a crime film. Congratulations! Yes, this is absolutely a crime film. Ripped from the headlines, <laughs> just like Law and Order. Exactly. <laughs> um, but Johnny, like I said, still gets fired, and he has to leave. And we get uh, Patrick Swayze singing "She's Like the Wind." over a sad rainy montage let's go to a clip somebody close to me can't look in her eyes she's out of my league just a fool to believe i am anything she needs she's like the wind. if this was anyone other than patrick swayze i would consider it overwrought soft rock schlock but it's swayze so i'm gonna let it pass it absolutely it is overwrought schlock but so much but it works yeah i love it it's so so overwrought drama i'm so here for it i'm you know what's weird though as, as many times as i've heard this song in my life i somehow had never put two and two together and realized this was from dirty dancing <laughs> well it almost wasn't Yes. It was okay. originally written for 1984's Granville, USA, another Patrick Swayze film. It was supposed to be about Jamie Lee Curtis's character. I could not tell you about Granville, USA. I read a synopsis of it earlier. I remember none of it. I think it has to do with cars. You could have um, made all of that up, and I would believe you. Yes. Now, um, he wrote this about his wife, Lisa. Oh, that's adorable. Which is very sweet. Um, they had a little bit of a dirty dancing thing going on. Um, she was a student at his mom's dance studio when she was 14 and he was 18. Mm -hmm. So, uh, however, uh, they were married 34 years until his death. Oh, 
Yeah. That's a shame. And this, so the, the music video for this one, just like with Hungry Eyes and I've Had the Time of My Life, that makes heavy, heavy use of like movie clips from Dirty Dancing, but also having like the main singer just sing in an empty warehouse somewhere. And oh, here yeah. in this in this case, it's Patrick Swayze. Yes. And we continued this trend of Patrick Swayze singing on the soundtrack with Raisin Heaven and Hell Tonight mm-hmm. in Roadhouse. And I really wish we'd continued this through all of his movies. Yeah, like, like I re- why doesn't he sing a song in Ghost? <laughs> Let's get a song in Too Wong Fu. Let's get one in Donnie Darko. I love that. I want more of it. Yeah, I mean, why why isn't there, you know, a Patrick Swayze song on the soundtrack to Black Dog? I don't know. Yeah. Well, he did sing. Uh, he played Sky Masterson taking over for Ewan McGregor in uh, the revival of Guys and Dolls in the West End. Oh, wow. Yeah. No, he he had, he had taken over. I would have, I would have, if I had known that, I would have gone back to the UK and seen that production again. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. I loved Ewan McGregor in it. I would have loved Patrick Swayze. But yeah, he can he can sing all right. He's a, he's an excellent dancer. Yeah, he, um, he sings just fine. I, I've got no problems. Um, but then we're we're almost here. We're almost to the big moment. We have almost made it. Yes. Now, uh, the staff of Kellerman's sings a little song, and at this point, as I said, when they show this at Barrel House Writer Camp, at this point, the camp staff. Uh, all come out and they sing this to us and it's very adorable they are usually a couple drinks deep <laughs> they are slightly off from the movie it's the best part but we get the acknowledgement from Robbie that he was the one that knocked up Penny and he's super chill about it he's just like yeah you know girls with their uteruses and their wombs getting pregnant <laughs> you, you know how that is being a doctor right sir yeah, ladies. And so Baby's dad immediately retracts his recommendation letter for Harvard. And I'm really surprised he doesn't rip his throat out. God, you were really on the, the ripping the throat kick tonight, aren't you? I am. I just think Robbie deserves it. I mean, you're not wrong. Robbie sucks. Robbie does Like, suck. Neil is redeemable. Is he, though? Like, he's a scumbag. But, like, he could learn. But, like, Robbie is a latch. Nothing good is ever going to come from. Robbie's probably a congressman now. You know, I I, t- I take back what I just said. Like, you know what? Yeah, Neil is going to wind up exactly like his grandpa doing the exact same thing. So I have no, I have no sympathy for him. Like he's yeah. Neil is enacting anti-choice laws. Honestly, like the people like Greg Abbott and Ron DeSantis and all those guys looked at this film and thought, yes, this is how women's health care should be. This is the model right here. The abortion laws state that the, the an abortion can only be performed by Jerry Orbach, and unfortunately, that man is dead. Yeah. Just like, yeah, women should have to miss work and get butchered. Yeah. That's, yes. We did it, everybody. <sighs> but during, during this... joke, but I have to make it. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to move us away from it. No. <laughs> during this song, uh, while the kids are singing, uh, Kellerman says to his band leader... Through the war years, when we didn't have any meat, through the Depression, when we didn't have anything. Lots of changes, oh, Max, lots of changes. It's not the changes so much this time, Tito. It's so that it all seems to be ending. You think kids want to come with their parents to take foxtrot lessons? Trips to Europe, that's what the kids want. Oh, these good old days of ours. Isn't it sad? Isn't it terribly sad that 
America will no longer be great. And yeah, the, he says this to his black band leader <laughs> exactly. who can't vote. Exactly. It's like, oh, Barb, <laughs> just shut up and dance. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's awful. The nerve of some people. Like, the, but, it's a moment where the film, like, almost gets it. Yeah, just, it has, oh, I'm going to ha- keep referencing the internet things. Like, oh, no, the worst person you know made an excellent point. <laughs> it's like, yes, you're absolutely right. However, no, sir, you pr- specifically are wrong. Yes. <laughs> but things are about to really change because who has come back but Johnny in his leather jacket? It's Johnny. He's back. He's He's now morphed completely into Dalton. <laughs> exactly. Full on Dalton mode. Yes, because nobody puts baby in a corner. Is the pain don't hurt of dirty dancing? Yeah, it truly is. They're gonna dance, god damn it! And he makes a weird little speech, and I wish he didn't. I wish he just got up there and danced. He's just like awkward, and just like <laughs> she's a really super lady. I came here to do a thing, and I'm gonna do a thing with the lady because she's my lady and she's cool. Yeah, and Thank she you. taught me about life and shit. Thank you for coming to my TED talk. <laughs> And then we get possibly the greatest song ever written. Here is Bill Medley and Jennifer Warren's I've Had the Time of My Life. This, uh, as we said earlier, was the winner of the 1987 Academy Award for Best Song Ever Written by Anyone, Anytime, Ever. I've got the other songs that it beat if you want me to to rattle those off for you real quick. I would love that because they're really bad. Because they're they're all bad. There's only one that I've even actually heard of. Yes. So Cry Freedom from the movie Cry Freedom. Nothing's going to stop us now from Mannequin. That's a bad song. And it's written by Diane Warren, who's a menace. Yeah, that's the only one I've actually heard. Shakedown from Beverly Hills Cop 2. Oh. The fuck? Beverly Hills Cop 2? <laughs> and then Storybook Love from The Princess Bride. Eh, that one's forgettable. So it's okay. Yes. Um, now, the history of this song is so amazing. It's so amazing that I kind of don't like that we had to wait to the end to talk about it. I know. This is the most interesting part of the entire thing. <laughs> yes. Basically, Frankie Prevetti, uh, formerly of Frankie and the Knockouts, was a wash without a record contract. He had a hit in 1981, but it was now 1986. He didn't have anything. And uh, Jimmy Eisner uh, approached him about doing a, quote, little film called Dirty Dancing. And he said no, because it sounded like a porno. And he was and, not wrong. No, he was wrong. Uh, Eisner didn't step down. In fact, he employed the Big Tom Callahan method and didn't take no for an answer. Why say no when it feels so good to say yes? Exactly. It just kept on him until he agreed to write this song with, as we said, John D. Nicola. But we'll get back to John D. Nicola in a second. We have a mm-hmm. special guest. Uh, other people who said no to this song, Donna Summer and our friend Joe, You're the Best, and Lady, Lady, Lady Esposito. <laughs> Daryl Hall and Kim Carnes both said no to this. Bill Medley said No. My daughter's being born. I want to be with my wife. No, no, no. And then Jennifer Warrens said no. And then they finally both said yes. I cannot imagine turning down this song. 
I don't know a single person who doesn't like this song. Bill Medley said no, partly because his daughter was being born, but also because he had just had a flop with a song called Loving on Borrowed Time with Gladys Knight for the Sylvester Stallone movie Cobra. (laughs) A movie that we have covered on Christmas Creeps because it ostensibly is a Christmas film. Yikes. And is, is quite possibly the worst thing in the world. Oh boy. It is an experience that you that must be endured. But that song, I completely forgot that song even existed. Mm-hmm. So But they turned down this song. Yeah. And again, I don't know a single person who doesn't like I've had the time of my life. I feel like you could go any place and just start playing this song and it would make everybody happy. Oh yeah. People love this song. So a, a couple things about John D. Nicole, and I want to introduce our special guest briefly. I'm um, he lives near us. Oh, no. He lives about 20 minutes from my husband and I. And uh, my husband, Ian, is here to talk a little bit about him because he has worked with him. So, Ian, this is all you. Hey, I'm here. Hi. Hey, what's up? How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? <clears throat> I'm quite well. So, so please, uh, tell, tell us about uh, John DiNicola. Uh, when I was a kid, I was... Uh... In this uh, Shakespeare in the Valley program, which is put on by the West Courtright Center. Fantastic program. Uh, and it is set in this little former church, like in the middle of the hills, nowhere in farmland. Absolutely beautiful. You go out there and you just do Shakespeare. Um, some of the best experiences of my uh, my child life. And now that I'm older, uh, you know, I, I do like to give back to them. Uh, and so I either designed their t-shirts or for a while I was actually designing their sets. So back in 2014, they were doing 12th night, uh, and they were doing it set in a disco because that is, they always, they always have their plays set in some crazy location like, uh, feudal Japan or, uh, all sorts of fun stuff like that. But, <laughs> uh, but anyway, so they would almost always have someone come in and write music for these plays because that's what Shakespeare needs is, is, is new songs. And I remember that year, the music was exceptionally catchy. It really caught me. And I was like, well, that's really cool. And they're like, well, well, you know who that is, don't you? And I said, no. And they said, well, that's John DiNicola. And I was like, really? I still don't know who that is. And they're like, well, that's the Dirty Dancing, or the uh, the guy who did uh, Time of My Life. And I was like, really? I've never seen Dirty Dancing. <laughs> <laughs> but regardless, it's like I, I knew the I knew the I knew the I knew the movie. And, you know, it's it's one thing, you know, like you, you hear these people, you hear these bands and it's like it's one thing to like go see them like, you know, performing in a small venue or whatever. But here is this guy, and he is out in the middle of nowhere writing original songs for these young people to sing and perform. And he's playing live under a little tiny pop-up tent, like, during this play. And just that opportunity... I mean, I was just watching. I wasn't even singing the song, but just that opportunity for a young person was so amazing. And just, I had no idea this guy lived up here. And the fact that he's willing to do that, just like show up and be like, yeah, I'll write some original music for you. No problem. 
like that's that's amazing that is that is an opportunity not to be missed and i mean he wrote five original songs for this this play uh of 12th night and they were so good that i actually went up to him and i said can i can i get a copy of these because i really enjoy them and he was nice enough to come back and he actually uh one of the during one of the performances he actually uh, recorded it live now i have no idea if he recorded and recorded these songs in his studio when he wrote them or what but if he didn't there's a very good chance that i have one of only a couple mp3 files of these songs out there wow which is you know written by this guy which is amazing and uh i remember a few years after the fact i sort of found them again and uh i sent because i knew some of the kids who had been involved and you know i sort of sent them over to him like hey look what i found and you know you can hear him you can hear him singing on it and you know it's it's a little bit raucous it's not as polished as like a studio album but you know it's it's got that kind of fun raucousness of uh, of kids singing and you can hear the audience laughing and clapping and mm-hmm. there's something absolutely beautiful about it and one of the songs um which is called uh, I'll be your light I love that song like it is like a hug uh and it just it just you know it's it's just fantastic so uh you know i was just sort of in the peripheral of him while he was working uh and uh yeah from everything i saw he was a he was a amazingly generous generous artist and musician to give back to those kids so that's amazing that's my experience yeah yeah. (laughs) all right so i'm gonna turn it back over to libby unless you got any other questions no, I I don't know what to say to that. That's just that's a really cool experience, though. That's awesome. All right, here here she is. <laughs> thanks, Ian. Wow, Ian, thanks for that. Yeah, that was really cool. That's that a that's really... a an amazing memory. I know, and just again, that guy lives so close to us, and he got to work with him. This Oscar winner. Um, I do want to say one more thing though about John DiNicola. He gave us this song, this iconic song. He also produced a band called Kara's Flowers, which went on to become Maroon 5. Are you fucking kidding me? I knew yeah. there had to be a turn somewhere in there. There had story. to be a catch. God. He was, he was too good. Ugh. Yeah. But he uh, released an acoustic version of this on his debut album, which actually only came out in 2019. Oh, wow. Yeah. Now, somehow, wow. And the original... a cover of Hungry Eyes as well. Right. Oh, okay. Now, somehow the original cut of, of Time of My Life was like seven minutes long. Mm-hmm. And, a lot more horn section. Right. And I feel like that's the version they used in the film because they really like it prolong is. it during the dance number. Yes. And they had to cut it down very quickly um, because they moved up the release date. Right. And without telling them. So they're like, oh, shoot, we better cut this. Um, so and they're actually dancing to a demo version. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not the Jennifer Warren's Bill Medley version. You can tell that they were ac- actually listening to it because uh, you get that one close up where where Johnny is like uh, mouthing the words to baby. Mm-hmm. The song's at least pl- actually playing. Yeah, no, it's it's a, the the version they filmed to right. is not the Jennifer Warren's Bill Medley version. Right, it's not it's not it's the, it's the demo. 
It's the original. Yeah, yeah. So it, that appears actually on Frankie Provetti's album. He's got that demo. It's a hidden track. Okay. Yeah, you can you can hear that. But yeah, the, this song it hit hit number one on the Billboard Hot 100 for exactly one week in November of '87. Like right when the film kind of peaked, and then uh, I guess later that winter is when it came out on video, and then the album like got big again mm-hmm. when everybody started picking up on video, or in my mom's case, taping it off HBO, mm-hmm. and it was the biggest thing in the world for like two or three years there yeah no it's and still i feel like this song has to be played at every wedding oh yeah really if you really want people to have the time of their life like play this to the point where jennifer warren's when she was uh recording her part she had this scene playing so that she could really get the emotion of that because you watch this scene and you just feel it you feel it so hard Mm mm-hmm it's like and everything's just, building to this one moment and it's just it's the perfect song for that finale. And it, it really, feels really so good. You're just so happy. You're happy. They're all happy. All the stiffness is gone. Everyone is dancing with everybody else. Lisa and Neil are dancing together. <laughs> or Lisa also completely steals the show, by the way, with her hula song. Good lord. We didn't even Amazing. talk about that. <laughs> no. Uh she steals the show and it's the best. It's delightful and embarrassing in both the best ways. <laughs> Which, uh, that, that actress co-wrote that song. I, oh, I, I believe that. <laughs> she gave it her all. Um, Good for her. She knew, she, knew, she knew how to time a joke. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Um, but the last, the last bit we get is with Jerry Orbach, whose name we've never mentioned. He says, I know it wasn't you that got Penny in trouble. Mm-hmm. And I'm, you know, apologizes when I'm wrong. I'll say I'm wrong. And I love that for them. Mm-hmm. Even even if he did just learn that like two minutes ago. Yeah. Like he at least admits when he's wrong. Yeah. And I appreciate that. That's that's good. That's great. He's he's a good man, that Jerry Orbach. Mm-hmm. A good egg. <laughs> we miss him. I know. And we've done terrible about keeping character names. You know, I don't even think they say his name. I just know him. I just call, keep calling him dad in my notes. Yeah. It's dad. I just called him Jerry Orbach, one word. But yeah, well, that's Dirty Dancing. It's still great. If you need a pick-me-up, absolutely watch it. Yeah. Oh, and obviously, we all know that she nails the lift. She nails it. She crushes it, yes. Nails it. So, three cheers for Dirty Dancing. So what are we doing next time, Joe? Well, next time on the show, we're circling back around to something we tried to do a few months ago, and we're talking about the soundtrack to 2002's Orange County. All right. Yeah, because we got to talk about the Foo Fighters. Yeah, you got to talk about that at some point. That's yeah. that just broke over the weekend and you just, uh, it hurts. We'll get to celebrate uh, Taylor Hawkins' legacy. And all of his glory. What a, what a loss. But yeah, look, look forward to that here in the next few weeks. And also, you know, we will have the poll up for this episode, uh, usually the weekend after it comes out. So keep an eye on that on our Twitter at OST Party. Uh, Libby, where can our listeners find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at Libby Cudmore and on Instagram at record underscore Saturday. Joe, where can they find you? You can find me on Twitter at Cordial Wombat, or you can uh, hear me talk about Christmas movies on the Christmas Creeps podcast at Christmas Creeps. Uh, I will, we'll put a link to Cobra in our show notes since I mentioned it. <laughs> yes. Um, and also uh, a link to our friends uh, Se- over at Secret of the Sailor Madness. So you can hear us talk about Clarks. Yeah, that's right. All kinds of fun stuff. And if you want to send us anything, you know, tweet at us at OST Party. Email us at OSTPartyPod at gmail.com. 
uh, go to iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify, wherever you listen to us and leave us like a star rating and a review that lets people know that we're a show worth listening to because we believe we're a show worth listening to. Yeah, we, we certainly enjoy it. We have fun doing this and we hope you enjoy it as well. So come on back and we'll talk about Orange County. So yes. for the OST party, I am Joseph Wade. And I'm Libby Cudmore. Buy the ticket. Take the ride. <laughs>